Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Before we get started in this week's episode, just want to give a quick little warning. You might hear some banging noises in the background. Don't be alarmed. It's not a kidnapped body that's trying to escape. It's just my radiator. I'm in Chicago. Winter is upon us. It's cold. I like keeping all my extremities warm. So radiator is cranked all the way up. It gets a little bit noisy. I'm going to do my best to edit that background noise out post-production, but I don't know if I'll be able to fully remove that. Anyways, in this week's study guide, I will be covering James Buchanan, our 15th president, who basically is considered to be the worst president in American history. Yes, Donald Trump may overtake him someday, but his term isn't over, so as a historian, it does not seem fair to assess him just yet. You almost certainly learned about James Buchanan in American history class because he's the president who comes right before Abraham Lincoln, and essentially he's the guy responsible for the Civil War. His study guide also includes a scandalous engagement, a whole lot of ice cream, and a real setback for LGBT representation in American history. Let's begin. James Buchanan is born April 23rd, 1791, in a literal log cabin somewhere in Franklin County, Pennsylvania. Depending on exactly what source you look at, the exact town that James Buchanan was born in is up for debate because Franklin County itself is so sparsely populated that there aren't exactly towns, so let's just call it Franklin County. He is the second of his parents' eventual 11th children, but he is the oldest boy, so that's really what matters. James's parents are James Buchanan Sr., but for whatever reason, he will always go by James Buchanan and not James Buchanan Jr., and Elizabeth Spear. James Buchanan Sr. is a merchant who had moved to the United States from Ireland about a decade before our James Buchanan was born. Elizabeth Spear, meanwhile, comes from a super-educated American family. It might seem like a bit of a mismatch. After all, if you are the Spear family patriarch, why would you want your educated daughter to marry a random Irish merchant? But as it turns out, James Buchanan Sr. is super good at the whole being a merchant thing and very quickly becomes one of the wealthiest men in Franklin County, so the Spear family readily approves of the marriage. As a result of the family's wealth and Elizabeth's family background, both of the Buchanan parents are very focused on making sure that their children, especially their oldest son James, become well-educated. As a child, James is going to attend various local schools and academies, and this will culminate when he is sent to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, when he is 16 years old. At the time, Dickinson is basically the best 
college for boys in the area who come from well-off but not fabulously wealthy families. It's about 70 miles away from home. It has a good three-year curriculum for young men who want to better themselves. James doesn't exactly do great at Dickinson. He almost gets expelled twice due to poor behavior, but because his daddy is so rich, he is allowed to stay. And as it turns out, he is pretty smart. James ends up graduating from the top of his class at Dickinson with honors and in only two years. Not so shabby, despite the whole almost getting expelled twice thing. After graduating from Dickinson, James moves to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which in the early 1800s was the capital of Pennsylvania, and he decides that he's going to study law because, as we've established, that's what you do when you're from a fairly wealthy family and you've graduated college. During his time in Lancaster, he works for a famous lawyer, and then in 1812, when he's only 21 years old, he passes the state bar exam, which means that he's now allowed to practice law on his own. But there's a slight wrinkle in these plans. Right when James Buchanan passes the state bar exam, the state of Pennsylvania decides to switch the capital from Lancaster, which is now a fairly small town, to the much larger city of Harrisburg. This is kind of a bummer for James. Most of his lawyerly friends move to Harrisburg, but James Buchanan is like, fuck that, I'm staying in Lancaster. And that is what he does. But once again, he gets interrupted because it's 1812. And what does that mean? That's right, the War of 1812. When the War of 1812 kicks off, James Buchanan decides to join a local militia. However, the local militia he chooses to join sees absolutely no action, and he will never rise above the rank of private, which means that James Buchanan is going to be the only president in U.S. history to technically be in the military, but not actually be an officer. Good job, James Buchanan. You are just racking up the winds. Once the War of 1812 ends and he's able to leave the military, such that his military experience was, Buchanan promptly returns to his law practice. And for once, things go his way. His law practice in Lancaster is super successful because most of the other lawyers in town had moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so suddenly he's getting all the local business. He starts making about $200,000 a year in 2019 money, which isn't too shabby for a starting lawyer. I mean, I think it's not too shabby. Honestly, I have no idea what the average salary for a new lawyer is. He also successfully defends a state judge in a national impeachment trial, so very quickly, James Buchanan's name is getting a lot of attention. In 1814, he wins a seat in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, even though he's only 23 years old at the time. During his time in the State House of Representatives, James Buchanan is going to establish himself as a very strong believer in the Federalist Party, which sets him apart from most of the rest of the state. 
most of Pennsylvania and the U.S. as a whole is going in a more democratic direction. So by winning as a federalist and running against the rest of the state, James Buchanan is showing that he's going to stand for what he believes in. And he is a man of principles, which he's not going to keep up for the rest of his life. During his time in the state house, Buchanan is going to keep running a successful law practice, and he's also going to become a Freemason because that's just what you did at the time. If you wanted to politically get ahead, you joined the Freemasons, which some people didn't love. Suddenly, the idea of politicians being Freemasons became more than a little sketchy, which would eventually lead to the rise of that third party I talked about way back in the Millard Fillmore study guide, the Anti-Mason Party. James Buchanan will stay in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives from 1814 until 1819. But his life isn't going to just be fun, games, politics, and law. Oh no, because in 1818, he's going to meet a young woman named Anne Caroline Coleman at a party. Anne Coleman's father is one of the wealthiest men in the United States, and he had made his money through iron and the railroads mostly. Anne and James quickly hit it off, but Anne's parents don't exactly love the Anne-James relationship. They feel like James is just in it for Anne's money, which doesn't fully make sense because, as we've established, James Buchanan has quite a lot of money of his own from his very successful law practice. But the two get engaged anyway, and things are going swimmingly. Until 1819, when gossip comes out that James Buchanan had been hanging out with another woman. It's unclear if this relationship with the second woman was platonic or not, but it doesn't matter because Anne Coleman is so upset that she breaks off their engagement via a letter and then falls ill and dies very dramatically. I mean, I stan a broken engagement and then death. The Coleman family blames James Buchanan for Anne's death, and they're so upset that they ban him from attending her funeral. James Buchanan is pretty distraught about the death of his fiance. He will never be engaged again, and he's not going to have any future high-profile relationships with women. Okay, fine. There's some rumors swirling around that he and James Knox Polk's wife, Sarah, had a whole torrid fling, but that's unlikely because one, Sarah Polk was extremely religious and more than a little uptight, so she probably wasn't sleeping around with anyone. And two, as I will discuss later on in the episode, as it turns out, James Buchanan probably wasn't that interested in women anyways. So here we are, end of 1819. James Buchanan's fiance has just died. Her family is blaming him. He's pretty upset. So what does he do? He decides to run for Congress to distract himself, which, yeah, that's totally a reasonable and, and rational response for getting over a breakup. The Coleman family, understandably, is not 
thrilled, but through the various connections that James Buchanan has made throughout the years, he does get elected to Congress, and he is going to serve in Congress until 1831. Pretty early on in his time in Congress, James Buchanan gets appointed onto the House Judiciary Committee, which is a huge deal. When James Buchanan first enters Congress, his political beliefs still lean in a Federalist Party direction. But the Federalist Party is dying. And if you're a young politician who wants to make his mark on history, belonging to a dying party just isn't going to do it. So James Buchanan jumps ship and joins the Democratic Party and is like, oh, that Andrew Jackson dude? Yeah, I'm all about the Andrew Jackson life. Pretty soon, James Buchanan becomes the leader of the Pennsylvania Democratic Party, because who cares about previous beliefs? Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. However, even though James Buchanan is now the leading Democrat in Pennsylvania, Andrew Jackson feels like James Buchanan was somehow part of the whole 1824 corrupt bargain, so he turns on Buchanan. Even though Jackson isn't his biggest fan, Buchanan still supports Jackson through the 1828 election and helps Jackson win Pennsylvania and ultimately the White House in 1828. Because of this, Jackson's like, oh my god, bro, I forgive you. And Van Buren is like, bro, I forgive you too. And the relationship is healed. Because Buchanan suddenly has a much better relationship with the brand new president of the United States, and because Andrew Jackson is a big fan of the old spoil system, he's able to get some pretty cushy gigs. The first one is in 1832, when Andrew Jackson appoints James Buchanan to become the United States envoy to Russia. In this position, James Buchanan is in charge of fixing a trade treaty between the two countries that had been causing some drama. Thanks to James Buchanan's extensive legal experience, he's able to patch up the relationship and push the treaty through, which makes everyone thrilled. Once the treaty is all fixed up, James Buchanan is like, what the fuck am I doing in Russia? Russia sucks! And he comes back to the United States and runs for the United States Senate. He wins. Even though people in Pennsylvania love James Buchanan, they feel like he looks like a senator. And as we all know, the way to become a senator is to look the part. Although in James Buchanan's case, he doesn't really look the part of senator. I don't want to judge anyone based on their appearances. You know me, I'm not a judgy bitch, but James Buchanan literally had you tilt his head sideways when he was talking to people due to this eye condition he had. But it didn't matter. He was suddenly a senator from Pennsylvania. Now that he was senator, he was going to start making his feelings on the big issue of the day clear. And now that we're in the 1830s, the big issue of the day is going to be slavery. Personally, James Buchanan doesn't love slavery. 
After all, he's from the North, he's from Pennsylvania, which has that long Quaker tradition of not approving of slavery. However, James Buchanan is a capital D Democrat. He feels like the federal government shouldn't be interfering in things. So that means the federal government can't intervene with the slavery issue. In fact, he goes as far as to say it is the government's job and duty to protect slavery in the South. As a result of his sympathetic position on slavery, he is going to get the really fun nickname Doughface from anti-slavery advocates in the North because he is seen as being pliable to sovereign interests the way Doe is pliable. Once James Buchanan becomes a senator in 1834, he starts living with William Rufus King, a politician from Alabama who would become the vice president for Franklin Pierce. King and Buchanan are super close. The two are going to live together until 1844 when King is sent to France as the U.S. minister to France. In Washington society, King is called Aunt Fancy and Aunt Nancy and is referred to Buchanan and is referred to as Buchanan's better half and Buchanan's wife, which leads to the controversial question about how serious was their relationship? Were they just really close friends or were they fucking? Buchanan's niece, who is basically his confidant, says no and after the fact burned their private letters. So we won't ever know. It's always hard in 2019 to put labels like homosexual or gay onto historical figures because our conceptions of sexuality are so different. In my opinion, the relationship between the two probably wasn't purely platonic. It reminds me a lot of our very first study guide where we talked about James I and the Duke of Buckingham. I think there probably was some sort of sexual or romantic relationship between James Buchanan and William Rufus King, which is why I personally don't take issue when people say that James Buchanan was our first non-straight president. I just wish our first non-straight president had done a slightly better job. Moving on. During Buchanan's time in the Senate, his main focus is going to be foreign policy. After all, he did have his experience with being the minister to Russia, and he's going to spend most of his time serving in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and being the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's chair. However, there's not that much going on in terms of foreign policy in the United States in the 1830s and 1840s. It's mostly going to be westward expansion, manifest destiny, some dealing with the main Canada border, sort of hinting at maybe Hawaii will someday be part of the United States. It's not going to be anything huge, so James Buchanan is going to mostly be laying low. Buchanan's habit of laying low would continue until 1844, when 
an election was coming up. In 1844, James Buchanan wanted to be the Democratic presidential nominee. I mean, who doesn't? But that was the year that James Knox Polk came out of nowhere, total dark horse, and somehow managed to capture the nomination. James Knox Polk ended up naming James Buchanan to be his Secretary of State because Buchanan had so much foreign policy experience. And as it turns out, James Buchanan did a pretty good job as Secretary of State. I do have to give him credit for that. He figured out the border between Oregon and Canada, which is the border that it is today, which is the reason why Oregon doesn't go all the way up to British Columbia, which is good. That prevented a war between Canada, Britain, and the United States, which we support because the last time the United States and England went to war over Canada in 1812, it did not go great. James Buchanan also helped with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which I have to stand because it eventually led to California becoming a state, and I'm always going to support anything that has to do with California becoming part of the United States. In 1848, the Democrats lost the White House to Zachary Taylor, which means that James E. Cannon lost his position as Secretary of State. Once he was out of the cabinet, he returned home to Pennsylvania and chilled for a bit. He was just hanging out. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a kid. He, once again, just got to lay low and hang out. And if that was where James Buchanan's story had ended, that would have been awesome. But this podcast episode wouldn't have existed. So it doesn't end there. In 1852, we have yet another election. And once again, James Buchanan really really wants to be the Democratic nominee for president. But as we discussed in the Franklin Pierce study guide, the Democrats had set up a new system where to become the nominee, you need two-thirds of the Democratic votes. And it looks like James Buchanan might get those two-thirds of the votes, but there's one person standing in his way. Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois, who's begun building up a bit of a reputation for being an awesome public speaker. Stephen Douglas also very, very much wants the nomination, please and thank you. Ultimately, Douglas and Buchanan are fighting for the nomination. Neither can quite hit the two-thirds vote threshold. It's ballot after ballot. On the 34th ballot, Franklin Pierce is pushed in as the compromise candidate and eventually gets the nomination. James Buchanan is pissed and he will blame Stephen Douglas for not receiving the 1852 nomination for the rest of his life. Even though James Buchanan does not get the nomination in 1852, he does get a good break. Franklin Pierce appoints him to be the U.S. Minister to England, which is a really awesome, cushy gig. One, you get to hang out in England, which is always fabulous. And two, while James Buchanan is off in England, he doesn't have to deal with the craziness of the Franklin Pierce administration and all of the bleeding Kansas drama, which is awesome. No one is going to blame him for this, which means that he's sort of the most popular guy 
in the Democratic Party come 1856. That being said, James Buchanan isn't going to do a perfect job as the foreign minister to England. He's going to get in trouble for the whole Ostend Manifesto thing, which I discussed last week in the Franklin Pierce study guide. But in case we forgot, the Ostend Manifesto was that time when the United States said that they might just steal Cuba from Spain in order to prevent a slave uprising that actually wasn't even on anyone's radar and most likely wasn't going to happen. And this manifesto got leaked and both Spain and England were incredibly pissed off. Once this manifesto came out, the northern states were extremely furious with Buchanan because he was so caught up in it. But the southern states were suddenly like, oh fuck, this Buchanan guy, he's super cool. One other bad thing that happened to Buchanan while he was away was that William Rufus King, his possible boyfriend, died of tuberculosis. Tragic. Then James Buchanan comes back in time for the 1856 election. In 1856, the Democratic nominee for president is super up for grabs. Everyone hates Franklin Pierce and Stephen Douglas because of the whole Kansas drama. So they have no Southern support, but maybe they could pull some votes from the South and the West. Franklin Pierce has a lot of Southern support, but Stephen Douglas has more Western support. This means that James Buchanan is able to enter the nominating convention as the frontrunner. He's mostly known for his foreign policy, which means he's not at all controversial. He convinces Stephen Douglas to drop out by promising to support Douglas if Douglas runs in 1860. James Buchanan gets a majority of the votes in the first round. And after 17 rounds of balloting, he hits that two-thirds threshold. And yes, 17 rounds of balloting sounds like a lot of rounds to go through. But remember how many rounds the Democrats had to deal with in 1852. 17 is nothing. The Democrats then choose John C. Breckinridge from Kentucky to be Buchanan's VP, because then we have that nice North-South balance on the ticket. In the general election, Buchanan is going to be running against Republican candidate John C. Fremont, who was the subject of a tangent cast a few episodes back. And if you haven't listened to that tangent cast, you can by joining the Patreon and becoming a patron. Yay, financially support the podcast. I need money. Not really, but it does help pay for things like web hosting, and other such expenses. In 1856, John C. Fremont had no political experience, but he was naturally famous due to his military record and the westward exploration he had done. He had been a key figure in the Mexican-American War, so everyone loved him. Buchanan also runs against the know-nothing candidate, Millard Fillmore, which I talked about in the Millard Fillmore study guide. The 1856 election is crazy for a whole lot of reasons. We're seeing all sorts of political tension in Washington, like 
the whole Preston Brooks beating up Charles Sumner thing. And then in May, we had John Brown killing anti killing pro-slavery men in Potawatomi Creek in Kansas, which makes it clear that slavery is going to be the defining issue of the 1856 election. And it is. John C. Fremont says that the federal government has to prohibit slavery in all the territories. Whereas James Buchanan says, yeah, no, slavery should be left up for the states and territories to decide. The federal government should stay out of it. The 1856 election ends up being super dirty. The Democrats and the Know-Nothings kind of team up together against John C. Fremont. They focus on the fact that his father was a Catholic and his parents technically were never married, which meant that he was born out of wedlock. So it just becomes this personal smear campaign. Meanwhile, the Republicans mock Buchanan for being old and the fact that he has to do this whole head tilt thing due to the fact that he's nearsighted in one eye and farsighted in the other and the fact that he said that 10 cents a day was enough for workers to live on, which shows how completely out of touch he was. Neither Buchanan nor Fremont campaign all that much. They're both relying on their reputations to get them votes, but this young former congressperson from Illinois named Abe Lincoln gives a ton of speeches on John C. Fremont's behalf. It's not quite enough. James Buchanan ends up winning 174 electoral votes to John C. Fremont's 114 in Millard Fillmore's 8. The win ends up being super regional. James Buchanan wins all the southern states in all the border states. He only wins four northern states and just barely wins his home state of Pennsylvania. He wins less than 50% of the popular vote, and after his victory, there's a lot of rumor of widespread election fraud causing him to win, but oh well, he gets the presidency because in the United States, we don't care about the popular vote. We only care about the Electoral College. Hooray. So let's talk a bit about James Buchanan's presidency, which is going to go super well, you guys. At his inauguration, James Buchanan kicks things off by making his stance on slavery super clear. He says that slavery should be up to the people and that the federal government should not intervene. He also makes it clear that when he's talking about people, he only means white men. People does not include people of color or women. Rip. He also promises that he will only serve one term as president, which as it turns out is going to be a real good thing. As if that's not enough to piss off people, his cabinet also makes a lot of people super angry. Of the seven members of his cabinet, four of them are slave owners from the South, and the three Northerners he chooses are pretty explicitly sympathetic towards slavery. So yeah, great choices all around, Jimmy Boy. But he does do something that pleases a lot of people. 
he has a super awesome inaugural ball. At his inaugural ball, he serves 1,200 gallons of ice cream and over $3,000 of wine, which is almost $100,000 of wine in two days money. His inaugural ball kicks off James Buchanan's reputation for being awesome at throwing parties, even if he himself had to leave the party a touch early because he had picked up some dysentery en route to Washington, D.C. During his presidency, James Buchanan obviously isn't married, so technically he does not have a first lady. However, his niece, Harriet Lane, who essentially is his confidant, will act as the White House hostess. Harriet Lane has a reputation for being awesome at throwing parties and for being super fashionable. She sometimes runs into a bit of scandal because she really likes to lower the necklines on all of her dresses. This is going to be a huge change from the last few presidential administrations. Basically, there hadn't been any White House parties since, well, John Tyler's administration, because Sarah Polk was very religious and didn't believe in serving alcohol. Zachary Taylor died. Abigail Fillmore was too sick to be a hostess, and the Pierces were dealing with the death of their last surviving child. That being said, Harriet Lane does have a really rough relationship with James Buchanan's beloved housekeeper, which does cause some tension within the White House. Ultimately, James Buchanan has to send his housekeeper back to Pennsylvania in order to make Harriet stay on as hostess. But once that's all sorted out, the White House becomes a real swinging hotspot, and we're going to have some great parties, which is good, because we need some sort of distraction from what a mess the James Buchanan administration is going to turn out to be. And the messiness starts quickly. Two days after James Buchanan's inauguration, the Supreme Court passes down the Dred Scott decision, aka one of the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. So let's talk a little bit about the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott was a slave whose master had taken him in to the Illinois and Wisconsin territories, which at the time were both free territories. After his master died, Dred Scott sued for freedom and was like, hey, being taken into a free territory makes me free. His master's wife countersues and is like, yeah, no, you're still my slave. It eventually goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, no. The Supreme Court's argument is that Dred Scott couldn't sue in federal court because he was a slave and slaves weren't citizens. But it eventually becomes more than that, although just that in of itself would have been bad because under that argument the Supreme Court is saying that no African Americans are citizens, which is a whole kettle of fish and was news for a lot of free African Americans who had been doing things that citizens do, like, you know, paying taxes. The Supreme Court takes it one step further. 
they say that slaves are property and the federal government can't interfere with property, so the federal government can't automatically ban slavery in territories or make possible states ban slavery in order to become states, which completely invalidates the Missouri Compromise and throws out about mm, 35 years of precedent. And then it gets even messier. Because, as it turns out, James Buchanan knew what the Supreme Court decision was going to be and had pushed a northern judge to rule with the southern majority. When this comes out, the north is furious. And they have good reason to be. I mean, the Missouri Compromise was a cornerstone of American life. This is how Americans have been living for two generations, and it's invalidated. And the president had taken steps to invalidate it. The president had been interfering with the Supreme Court, which the president isn't supposed to do. You're not supposed to interfere with different branches of government. It gets to the point where abolitionists say, yeah, no, we're not going to follow this Supreme Court decision. Also, fighting slavery is part of this divine, godly, moral fight. So in the fight to end slavery, we don't have to follow the laws of man. We don't have to listen to the government, which, yeah, that's kind of a slippery slope. But in this case, I agree with them because slavery is so wrong that you can like ignore the rules to get rid of it. The North straightly blames Buchanan for the Dred Scott decision. And by now, the U.S. is super divided. You have the Republicans who are northern anti-slavery versus the Democrats who are essentially southerners. And then a few northerners who don't love slavery but feel like being united is more important, which I'm sorry, that is bullshit. Don't both sides slavery. Slavery is wrong. You should not own people. Like, if that's controversial, I don't know what's wrong with you. In the middle of all the Dred Scott drama, James Buchanan is trying to do some foreign policy stuff. After all, that's what he was known for. But it doesn't really go that well because of all the domestic drama that he kind of sort of caused. James Buchanan and his southern friends are still going to be trying to annex Cuba. Once again, that's not going to go anywhere. He's going to continue to isolate multiple Central American nations because of various southerners' attempts to take over various Central American nations and attempts to turn those into slave states. And this is really going to cause conflict both with Central American nations and with England. And James Buchanan is also going to try to invade northern Mexico to turn it into a slave state. But this also doesn't go anywhere. I think it just really shows how little support James Buchanan has for the one thing he possibly was good at, which is foreign affairs. So yeah, with that little fun side thing into foreign affairs. Let's go back into the meat of James Buchanan's presidency, which is fucking up domestically. 
Kansas continues to be a hot mess. Basically, once James Buchanan becomes president, pro-slavery people in Kansas try to call their own state constitutional convention in order to form their own government. The anti-slavery people in Kansas, which were a majority of the Kansas population, say, yeah, no, we're not doing this. This convention isn't valid, so they boycott it. James Buchanan is like, well, even though the pro-slavery people are a minority of the population, I'm going to accept their convention and their constitution in order to appease the South. And he does. The constitution that comes out of this convention is known as the Lee Compton Constitution because the convention was held in Lee Compton. And the Lee Compton Constitution says that Kansas is going to enter the United States as a slave state, even though, as we've established, the majority of Kansas's population is extremely anti-slavery. Buchanan then pushes the U.S. Senate to accept Kansas as a slave state, even though Kansas's own governor and Stephen Douglas, the guy who had kind of kicked off the whole Kansas mess, think that this is a terrible idea. Stephen Douglas ends up joining with the Republicans, who fucking hate Stephen Douglas, to push through a new bill that would allow Kansas's citizens to re-vote on a new constitution on whether or not they should be a slave state. And surprise, surprise, Kansas votes to enter the Union as a free state. And they will eventually do that, but not until the Civil War has already begun. The whole Kansas mess makes James Buchanan one, looks super inept, because whenever he tries something, the Senate does the exact opposite, and once again, it makes it look like he's really favoring the South, which he is. Oh, and then on top of it, we have a fun financial panic. The Panic of 1857. This panic starts in August slash September 1857, when a major Ohio bank stops paying its creditors. This panic quickly spreads to New York, where banks start calling in loans, and once New York banks start calling in loans, it explodes from there. This panic has a huge impact on merchants and people who have had to borrow money to buy land, aka it's mostly going to impact the North and the West, aka people who already don't love James Buchanan. And James Buchanan does not handle the panic well at all. He argues that the government should just stay out of it, which just isolates him from the North and the West even further. As a result of all this, the 1858 midterms goes terribly for Buchanan and the Democrats. The Republicans gain control of the House of Representatives. And remember, the Democrats... The Republican Party had only really started existing two years earlier in 1856, and now they control the House of Representatives. That is a crazy turnaround time for a brand new political party. And then in 1859, the John Brown thing happens, which is going to be its own episode, aka next episode. Basically, in short, 
John Brown was a kind of crazy anti-slavery militant who decided that the best way to get rid of slavery was via an armed uprising and decides the best way to do this is to attack the military arsenal at Harper's Ferry in Virginia. It fails, he ends up getting executed, but in the process he massively freaked out the South and suddenly Southerners are worried that slave uprisings are imminent and everyone's going to die. Oh yeah, and this happens right as we're getting ready for the 1860 election. Great timing, guys. So the 1860 election is going to be a hot mess no matter what because of, well, everything we've talked about. Financial panics, bleeding Kansas, John Brown. The Democrats are split into what direction to go re the whole slavery thing. Do we go in the more southern direction, defending slavery at any cost, or do we go into the northern direction where we support slavery, but we're more focused on just uniting the country? Because they can't decide what direction you go into, the Democrats end up splitting into two parties, who are very conveniently named the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats. The Northern Democrats are going to nominate Stephen Douglas, while the Southern Democrats are going to nominate Buchanan's Vice President John Beckinridge. Meanwhile, the Republicans are going to choose this completely obscure figure who's not at all important named Abraham Lincoln. In terms of Republican politics in 1860, Abraham Lincoln is fairly moderate because at the time he just wants to end slavery spread in the territories. He doesn't want to ban it altogether but he also has a reputation for being a great speaker and super smart. Because the Democrats run two candidates and split the party, the Republicans win the national election. Yes, he doesn't quite win 50% of the popular vote, but as we've established ad nauseum, you don't need to win 50% of the popular vote to become president. He completely obliterates the Electoral College because he's winning all the Northern votes. That's where most of the Electoral College votes are because the North has most of the population. As soon as Abraham Lincoln wins, Southern states are like, yeah, no, we will not stand for having a Republican president who threatens the institution of slavery within three months of Lincoln's election before James Buchanan's term is even over, seven southern states secede. And just to make it really clear, these southern states are seceding over the slavery issue. They are seceding because they are afraid, quite rightly, that under the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, they will lose the right to own slaves. So whenever people are like, oh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, they are wrong. The Civil War was about slavery. People might say it was about states' rights, and yes, it was. It was about the rights of states to own slaves. Let us not forget that. So we have states seceding during James Buchanan's term, and James Buchanan is like, oh no, what should I do? Well, because I'm incompetent and I don't want to make anyone angry, I'm not going to take action against any of the states 
leaving the Union, which just makes the Northerners even more angry at him. Because of the whole secession issue, all of his Southern cabinet members resign, as does Lewis Cass of Michigan, who was his one cabinet member who wasn't a complete piece of shit. Lewis Cass resigns because he's so frustrated that James Buchanan isn't doing anything. And then it gets a little bit worse. But James Buchanan does do one thing that's not completely terrible. When South Carolina secedes, they ask to be given control of Fort Sumter, which is a federal fort located in South Carolina. And James Buchanan is like, no, it's a federal fort, so it's staying with the federal government. However, James Buchanan doesn't want to piss off South Carolina, so he refuses to send any supplies or reinforcements to Fort Sumter, which definitely isn't going to be a big deal or kickstart the Civil War or anything. So yeah, that is how James Buchanan leaves things once his term runs up. We have seven states that have left the United States. We have a federal fort in South Carolina on the verge of collapse. James Buchanan is doing nothing to deal with it, and suddenly it's up to Abe Lincoln to pick up the pieces. As soon as Lincoln gets inaugurated, James Buchanan goes back to his home in retirement. He will only communicate with Abe Lincoln once post-inauguration, and that is simply to yell at him about some books that he had left behind in the White House and that he wants back. Way to read the room, Jimmy old boy. Because of all of this, James Buchanan obviously is going to get blamed for the Civil War, which fair. People are going to continually deface his portrait in the Capitol and write Judas and other such things on it. So yeah, they have to take his portrait down from the Capitol for a while. After the Civil War is done, James Buchanan publishes a book in an attempt to clear himself of blame for the Civil War and to squarely blame the Republicans for it. And this book doesn't really go anywhere. Everyone ignores it when it's published. Current historians ignore it. It's sort of a failure. Basically, it's only used in contemporary research to try to determine if James Buchanan maybe had dementia during his presidency and if that can maybe explain why he was such a bad president. And most of that research has determined, yeah, no, he probably didn't have dementia. He was just a really incompetent president. In May 1868, James Buchanan falls ill with a cold, and he ends up dying on June 1st, 1868, of respiratory failure when he is 77. And yeah, much like Franklin Pierce, no one really mourns him that much. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's attempt to recap James Buchanan's really messy and competent life. So, James Buchanan was born in 1791 to a fairly well-off family that valued education. He went to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania when he was 16. He graduated when he was 18, became a lawyer, passed the bar exam at a really young age, briefly served in a local militia during the War of 1812, didn't see any action, went back to being a lawyer, got a seat in his local 
state government when he was 23, served in the state government for five years, briefly got engaged, may or may not have cheated on his fiancée, seems unlikely given that James C. Cannon probably was gay, but the engagement got called off and his fiancée died soon after, post-engagement, ran for Congress, got elected, served in the House for 10 years, became BFFs with Andrew Jackson through that friendship, served in Russia, came back from Russia, ran for the Senate, served in the Senate for another 10 years, then became Secretary of State. Actually did a really great job as Secretary of State. When it came to foreign affairs, it must be said, James Buchanan, pretty on top of things. Once James Knox Polk stopped being president, James Buchanan no longer had a president to serve under, went back home for a bit, attempted to become president in 1852, lost that nomination, became U.S. minister to England, once again did fairly well, got into some hot water over Cuba, but then again, who doesn't get into hot water over Cuba? And then finally in 1856, because he literally wasn't the only Democrat who hadn't been fucked over by Kansas, he decided to run for president, and he won. But by the time he became president, the U.S. was super divided over the whole slavery thing. James Buchanan decided to take the really questionable strategy of appeasing the Southerners and supporting slavery, because who doesn't want to stand for owning people? James Buchanan kicked off his presidency by pushing the Supreme Court to rule in favor of slave owners in Dred Scott and basically undoing two generations of president with the Missouri Compromise, which, yeah, such a great idea. Let's say that slaves and African Americans don't count as full people. That definitely isn't problematic. Thanks to the Dred Scott decision, James Buchanan completely isolated the North, who were going to spend the rest of his presidency being wildly pissed off at him, which I would be too. James Buchanan then continued to fuck up in Kansas by continuing to support the pro-slavery minority there, to the extent where he tried to push Kansas to become a slave state, even though the majority of people in Kansas wanted to be a free state. That got undone by the Senate. Thankfully, we then got John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry to close off James Buchanan's term. And whenever you get a raid on a federal building, that really means you're doing a great job as president. James Buchanan made the great choice not to run for re-election. So we get the really messy 1860 re-election the really messy 1860 election. By then, the Democratic Party has split in two between North and South, which allows Abe Lincoln to win under the Republican Party. This really freaks out Southerners because, oh my gosh, they're going to keep us from owning people. How dare they? I demand the right to own another human being. So we start getting Southern states dropping like flies and seceding from the Union. Once again, James Buchanan refuses to do anything about it. Great job, James. And he leaves that little crisis known as the Civil War to Abraham Lincoln to deal with. Once he's done being president, James Buchanan goes home, 
Waller, he will sulk in isolation until he dies in June 1868. And yeah, no one misses him. So with all that in mind, I, I really do think it's fair to say that James Buchanan was our worst president. There's literally nothing good to say about his presidency. Which is a shame because, yeah, first gay president just epically fucking things up. Rip everything. For this episode, most of my research came from William Cooper's essays on James Buchanan for the Miller Center, Jane Baker's bio on James Buchanan, Gary Bullard's biography, The Worst President Ever, The Story of James Buchanan, and Robert Strauss's biography, Worst President Ever, James Buchanan, The POTUS Rating Game, and The Legacy of the Least of the Lesser Presidents. And the fact that two of my biographies were called The Worst President Ever really says a lot about James Buchanan. As always, for a full bibliography and relevant images, visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next time, I will be closing out this series on the build-up to the Civil War with a special episode about radical anti-slavery activist John Brown with a really special guest host, my twin sister. She is kind of not an expert, but John Brown and reconstruction and all of that is her interest. So I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear from her. So that's really cool. Also, if you are a Patreon, there will be a tangent cast going up this week about the story of Ellen and William Craft, which is a slightly happy story from the time period. Yes, it involves slavery, but it also involves sticking it to the slavery system. So yay. If you are not a Patreon and you want to and you want to hear the story, you can access it by becoming a patron at the $5 a month level or above at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. As always, let me know how I'm doing. You can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. You can hang out with me at, on social media at Twitter at Sad Girl Study Pod or on Instagram for these cool, cool history memes at Sad Girl Study. The best way to support the podcast is to subscribe or tell a friend. We're available on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or Spotify. And let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks.